Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of ChrisMasterjohnPhD.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, where we are now in the third in a series of lessons on the antioxidant defense system. The big picture that we're working with through these lessons is shown on the screen. And in the first lesson, we talked about how oxidants like superoxide and hydrogen peroxide can have healthful physiological roles when they're in their proper amount and context. And in the second lesson, we talked about how they can have disease-producing pathological roles when they are overproduced or produced in the wrong context. And now in this third lesson, we're going to talk about how the antioxidant defense system functions to move them away from their disease-causing roles and towards their physiological roles. In the second lesson, we said that pathological disease-producing roles of oxidants could include oxidative damage and alterations to cell signaling. The antioxidant defense system is going to minimize oxidative damage. It's probably never going to be able to bring it down to zero, but if it could, it would want to bring damage down to zero. But it's not going to try to minimize cell signaling, shown on the left here. It's going to try to properly regulate cell signaling because the cell signaling function of oxidants, as we covered in the first lesson, has have positive health-promoting roles. So we want that cell signaling to be appropriate and health-promoting rather than disease-promoting. We don't want to get rid of it. All right, so let's dive right into it and look at how this system works. So what's shown on the screen is the portion of the antioxidant defense system that exists inside cells in the aqueous components, whether it's the water-based component between, cell, uh, between organelles, which is called a cytosol, or the water-based component inside an organelle. And if we start with superoxide, we have the enzyme superoxide dismutase, or SOD, that can convert superoxide to hydrogen peroxide. SOD has a mitochondrial form that's dependent on manganese and a cytosolic form that's dependent on copper and zinc. There's a very similar plasma form that can be put out into the blood that's also dependent on copper and zinc. Once you get superoxide to hydrogen peroxide, you can convert hydrogen peroxide to water using either glutathione peroxidase which depends on glutathione and selenium. Glutathione is derived from dietary protein. Or catalase, which depends on iron in its heme form. Either of these can convert hydrogen peroxide to water. So thinking about the diet, protein for glutathione, and we'll talk about that in much more detail in a later lesson, but selenium, iron, copper, zinc, and manganese are all essential minerals in the diet. Now, we should keep in mind that, on the one hand, this could be seen as a way of making superoxide go straight to water. On the other hand, as we talked about in the first lesson, hydrogen peroxide has a lot of valuable roles. So we're not actually trying to always take the superoxide all the way to water. Sometimes, in the proper place, at the proper time, we want the hydrogen peroxide. So we can adjust the, the ratio of activity between these different enzymes in order to control the amount of hydrogen peroxide and the location of that hydrogen peroxide to facilitate H2O2 having a positive health-promoting role. Another thing to notice is this system is rife with potential for interactions between nutrients. 
So for example, say someone is deficient in copper and zinc. If you just restore the copper, you're not going to fix SOD. You're going to have to restore both of those minerals. On the other hand, let's say someone is deficient in copper and selenium. Well, replacing copper will help you get the positive benefits of hydrogen peroxide. But if you don't replace the selenium, you can get all the negative consequences of hydrogen peroxide because it just has uh, unlimited potential to accumulate and you don't have any control over it by reducing it to water. If we look at how this works in the thyroid gland, we can see why it's not just about the amount, but it's really about controlling the location and timing. So in the first lesson, we talked about how the thyrocyte is going to produce lots of hydrogen peroxide and put it into a location called the follicle lumen so that it can be safely compartmentalized for the production of thyroid hormone. Some of that hydrogen peroxide is made inside the cell and put out into the follicle lumen. Some is made by NADPH oxidase in the cell membrane and goes straight into the follicle lumen. In either case, you have some potential for hydrogen peroxide to cause a damage in the cell, either because it was produced there or because once it's in the follicle lumen, a little bit of it can slip back into the cell. So the thyroid gland has, on the one hand, mechanisms to make tons of hydrogen peroxide out here, and on the other hand, has the highest concentration of selenium in the body because inside the thyrocyte, it has incredibly high expression of glutathione peroxidase to convert that hydrogen peroxide to water. That makes sure that hydrogen peroxide is maximized in the follicle lumen, but minimized inside the thyrocyte. Now we can also see here that while we talked about NADPH oxidase in the first lesson, now that we've talked about superoxide dismutase, we can say, well, really, how the cell is making hydrogen peroxide to get out here is NADPH oxidase makes superoxide, and SOD makes turns that superoxide into hydrogen peroxide. So zinc and copper, as part of SOD, are helping you increase hydrogen peroxide in the follicle lumen. And then that's paired with glutathione peroxidase only inside the thyrocyte to help minimize hydrogen peroxide in that location. But let's say that the thyroid gland wants to turn down the production of thyroid hormone. There are numerous mechanisms to do that, and one of them involves taking glutathione peroxidase and moving it from the cytosol of the thyrocyte into the follicle lumen. So if glutathione peroxidase is expressed in the follicle lumen, it takes the H2O2 and makes water. If it does that, the iodide never gets oxidized to iodine, and thyroid hormone production declines. So one of the ways to control thyroid hormone is to increase glutathione peroxidase in the follicle lumen, but that requires that you have the selenium there. So let's take, for example, let's think about what would happen to the thyroid gland in someone who's deficient in selenium. So first of all, their thyrocyte has no protection against all this hydrogen peroxide being made. And if that's the case, the hydrogen peroxide is gonna damage the thyrocyte. That's problem number one. Number two is cellular damage elicits an immune response. 
that's going to drive inflammation. Number three is if glutathione peroxidase expression in the follicle lumen is one of the tools in the kit of the thyroid gland to ramp down thyroid hormone production, then selenium deficiency is going to rob the thyroid gland of that tool. So the thyroid gland is in a position where it's getting damaged, inflammation is increasing and causing other problems, maybe further oxidants, and on top of that, the thyroid gland has less control over thyroid hormone production. And so one of the descriptions of Hashimoto's is not only inflammation and oxidative stress in the thyroid tissue, but also thyroid hormone levels can go up and down more erratically sometimes. And that could be, cut, could be due not only to damage to the tissue, but also because missing the selenium is missing a central tool in the kit of the thyroid gland to make the right amount of thyroid hormone. All right, so that's what's going on in the water-based portions of the cell. Now let's take, it the, take a look at the lipid-based membrane. So we talked last time about lipid peroxidation chain reactions, where a polyunsaturated fatty acid, or PUFA, can interact with an oxidant and become a lipid radical, then a lipid peroxyl radical after it reacts with oxygen, and then a lipid peroxide. And when it becomes a lipid peroxide, it takes the hydrogen ion and electron from another PUFA, and that makes a new lipid radical. Meanwhile, the first lipid peroxide can fragment to form MDA and other highly reactive compounds. And the second PUFA that got oxidized can now initiate a new cycle. So that propagation step happens over and over and over again, and lipid peroxides accumulate. Vitamin E is known as a chain-breaking antioxidant, and that's because it breaks the lipid peroxidation chain reaction, but it doesn't stop the initiation stage. So because of its chemical structure and where it's positioned in the membrane, vitamin E has very high affinity for the lipid peroxyl radical. In fact, even though there's a lot less vitamin E in a membrane than there is PUFA, Vitamin E is a thousand times more likely to react with a lipid peroxyl radical. So when an oxidant comes to react with a PUFA, that oxidant doesn't really have access to the vitamin E, and so that initiation stage pretty much always happens. But once the lipid radical becomes a lipid peroxyl radical, vitamin E will say, you know what? you're not going to take that hydrogen ion and electron from another PUFA, you're going to take it from me. That lipid peroxyl radical says, whatever, dude, I just want, I just want a hydrogen ion and electron, like, bang, and becomes a, lipid becomes a lipid peroxide and can have all the dangerous consequences that lipid peroxides have. However, since the lipid peroxyl radical did not take the hydrogen and electron from another PUFA, the propagation step does not go forward. And since you have initiation, but you don't have propagation, then you don't have a lipid peroxidation chain reaction. So if you put that in the broader context, the lipid peroxyl radical takes a hydrogen ion and electron from vitamin E and becomes a lipid peroxide. We can refer to a hydrogen ion and electron as reducing power. Anything that gets oxidized gives up that reducing power 
to whatever had oxidized it. So this lipid peroxyl radical has a voracious appetite for reducing power and gets it from vitamin E instead of from another PUFA. That makes one lipid peroxide instead of having many lipid peroxides in the lipid peroxidation chain reaction. But you can say, hold up. If vitamin E becomes oxidized, why doesn't vitamin E just act as the new oxidant like the PUFA would have done had it gotten oxidized? And why doesn't vitamin E just promote a different type of chain reaction? The reason is that vitamin E is positioned just such in the membrane that after it converts the lipid peroxyl radical to a lipid peroxide and becomes oxidized itself, it can very easily interact with vitamin C. Vitamin C then reduces vitamin E and recycles it, and in the process becomes oxidized itself. Glutathione, abbreviated here as GSH, then reduces vitamin C and recycles it, and becomes oxidized itself, which we abbreviate here as GSSG. So what vitamin E is really doing is taking the burden of supplying reducing power away from the membrane PUFAs and placing it on these other water-soluble antioxidants. As we'll see in future lessons, what glutathione is going to do is take it and transfer that burden to the system of energy metabolism. But basically, if you have an oxidant reaching the membrane, the number one priority is to take that burden of supplying reducing power out of the membrane as fast as possible so that the membrane isn't destroyed in the lipid peroxidation chain reaction. Now, once vitamin E does this, it just makes a lipid peroxide, and even though there's fewer lipid peroxides, it's not zero, and that lipid peroxide can fragment into MDA or other highly reactive compounds and damage other cellular constituents. So what you then have is glutathione peroxidase in a membrane-bound form uses glutathione and selenium to reduce the lipid peroxide into a hydroxy fatty acid. These hydroxy fatty acids are not harmless. In fact, hydroxy fatty acids are implicated in all kinds of inflammatory disorders. Just to take one example, oxidized LDL is very well established to be a driving force in atherosclerosis and contribute to heart disease. The components of the LDL particle that drive the atherosclerotic plaque have been found to be the hydroxy fatty acids contained in its membrane. They elicit the inflammatory response that recognizes those hydroxy fatty acids as damaged tissue and they sequester it in the plaque. However, forming hydroxy fatty acids, although they're recognized as damaged tissue by the immune system, it's nowhere near as dangerous as accumulation of lipid peroxides that could fragment into MDA and other things that are going to destroy the rest of the cell by damaging the proteins and DNA. So this is primarily a system of damage control. You can never regenerate the original PUFA once it's oxidized. And you can never fully detoxify it into something that's totally harmless. But you can avert the lipid peroxidation chain reaction and thereby minimize lipid peroxides. And you can take those lipid peroxides and convert them to less harmful hydroxy fatty acids. And it's not a perfect system, 
but it's much better than not having the system in place. If we look at where this system is situated, these dotted lines represent the division between the membrane, which is the lipid phase, and the rest of the cell, which is the aqueous phase, the water-based fluid of the cell. Everything above the dotted lines is the membrane. Everything below the dotted lines is the aqueous phase. So vitamin E is inside the membrane, but it's towards the edge of it so that it's able to interact with vitamin C, which is in the aqueous phase, as is glutathione. The lipid peroxyl radical, the lipid peroxide, all this is inside the membrane. Glutathione peroxidase in this form is membrane bound and selenium is attached to it, but it's able to access the lipid peroxide that's inside the membrane and convert it to a hydroxy fatty acid and it's able to take glutathione from the aqueous phase to use in that process. So if we summarize the aspects that impact lipid peroxidation, we can divide everything into things that stimulate lipid peroxide accumulation, shown in the green on the left, and those that minimize or reduce lipid peroxidation, shown in yellow on the right. So if we have inflammation, thyroid production, normal cell signaling, normal metabolism, we have production of water-soluble oxidants, they will reach the membrane and whether they make a lipid peroxide depends on whether they encounter a PUFA. So the concentration of PUFAs in a cellular membrane is also important. Some membranes are regulated much more tightly than others and so diet has less of an influence on those membranes. But the amount of PUFA in our diet always has some impact on the concentration of PUFAs in any cellular membrane, and in the ones that are less regulated, it has even greater impact. So to some degree, dietary consumption of PUFAs is going to make it more likely to have a PUFA in the membrane, and so if an oxidant reaches the membrane and that PUFA is in the membrane, a lipid peroxide forms. Meanwhile, there are various things that are counteracting that. We can begin with the water-soluble oxidants themselves. Because of the enzymatic system with SOD, glutathione peroxidase, and catalase, we can convert those oxidants to water before they ever reach the membrane. Water reaching the membrane is not going to form a lipid peroxide. Once a lipid peroxide forms, we have a system of damage control. Vitamin E prevents the propagation of the chain reaction. And then whatever lipid peroxides do form, whether they formed from vitamin E or from the chain reaction, can then be detoxified into hydroxy fatty acids using glutathione peroxidase. They are not harmless, but they're less harmful than accumulation of lipid peroxides. The more lipid peroxides we have, the more they stimulate further oxidative damage. And the more these counteracting forces minimize lipid peroxidation, the more we can minimize that other oxidative damage. When you're thinking about how to minimize it in an individual person, no one component of this system is any more important than any other. But in a given individual, if that person has chronic inflammation, maybe that's the most important thing. If that person has a selenium deficiency, maybe that's the most important thing. And whatever the weakest link is in someone's chain of defense, that's going to be the one thing, or maybe the two or three things, depending on the situation, they're going to have the biggest payoff for improving that person's health. All right, so that's a look at an introduction to the antioxidant defense system. What we're going to do in the next several lessons is 
pick apart each of these components and zero in on them a little bit more to look at how they function and also what it might mean for our diets. I hope you enjoyed this. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn.